0: Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you, like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on that day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high.
1: Let me pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we want to ask and pray that you would reveal the living Lord Jesus to us afresh through your living word. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts and wills to respond with faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, it's highly likely that there's going to be um, a general election in the next uh, year. And uh, one of the things that's happening at the moment is that more and more MPs are announcing that they're not going to stand in the coming election. In fact, there's an unusually large number of MPs who are announcing that they are no longer going to uh, stand, Uh, the majority of them from the Conservative Party. Well, why is it that they're doing that? Well, this is not a political point, but the reason that so many are choosing not to stand is because they expect to lose. They think uh, the probability is they're going to lose the next election, and so therefore they don't want to put the effort in to keep going. They don't want to campaign, they don't want to pour all of their energies into what they feel will be a fruitless campaign. They want the opportunity to begin to develop new and better career options now. You see, if you feel you're going to be a loser, what is the reason for going on? Why not just give up and do something different instead? Well, I think that's a question that we often ask ourselves as Christians. As Christians, uh, the great danger is that we will give up on Jesus, on the Christian life, and of living for him. Deep down, we wonder whether or not by following Christ, we are losers, and therefore whether it's really worth it. There might be all sorts of reasons that cause us to feel like that. There might be personal reasons. We might be tired and wearied with the struggle against sin. We never seem to make any progress, no matter how much we pray or how hard we try. We think, is it worth it? Why all this energy and emotional effort for so little progress? Maybe it's suffering that we experience. Maybe life is hard. Maybe we're ill. Maybe there are challenges in our relationships. We experience kind of suffering. And we think, is it really worth it if this is what I'm experiencing in my life? Maybe it's the kind of um, uh, persecution and marginalization we feel in our society. I mentioned earlier the church is declining, the cultural significance of Christianity is, is being eclipsed. We wonder, is it worth it standing out, being small? Maybe it's disappointment. We had such high expectations of the Christian life and the gospel and church ministry and what it would achieve. And it's been slow, hard slog. I wonder, has it been worth it? Well, maybe actually our lives are perfectly fine objectively. But actually, we suffer with a significant fear of missing out. It's all the things we're not doing. The better lives that others seem to have. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever wonder whether it's really worth it, keeping going? Maybe you're tempted to give up. Or if not give up, maybe you're tempted just to change down a gear and try to have both. What will keep us going in the Christian life? when too easily we can feel like losers? Well, the answer, I think, is what will keep us going is a vision of Jesus. That is what we need if we're to be sustained and encouraged and to keep going in the Christian life. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we find ourselves in this world as exiles, we are kind of um, uh, uh, sort of those who are living on the edge of society. That's the situation in which we find ourselves. And for people in that context, what they need to keep them going is the confidence that they will be victorious in the end. And for that, they need a vision of Jesus. And that, I think, is exactly what we're given here in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Here in Psalm 110, David, the greatest king of Israel, is given a vision of uh, Jesus. Now, we don't know um, exactly what the context was in which David um, had this experience that he records for us in Psalm 110. We don't know from what moment in his life it came. There are many situations in which David was um, marginalized and deeply discouraged. It could have come from any of those uh, sort of moments, But the book of Psalms as a whole, I think, was a kind of gathered together and brought together as a full collection of these 150 psalms, either during or just shortly after the period of Israel's exile. The Psalms is not, first and foremost, kind of like a worship album, the 150 best songs from Israel. Pick and choose the ones that you like when you want to sing something on a particular theme. The Book of Psalms is a very carefully constructed collection of 150 um, sort of psalms drawn from all sorts of different periods in Israel's history but brought together in a particular context. The Book of Psalms essentially uh, tells the story of the restoration of God's people from their exile to coming back into the presence of God and to worship him. These psalms were brought together and were meant to be sung by the covenant people of God to encourage them in a situation in which they found themselves in exile and to enable them to keep trusting God and keep living for him with confidence and hope. David, I think, evidently needed that at a particular moment in his life, but it's gathered into this collection of psalms because the psalms are there to encourage God's people to uh, keep going, to not give up. This psalm, as I said, is a vision of uh, Jesus. That is what David uh, kind of sees in this psalm. David, who is God's anointed king, is given a vision of God's heavenly anointed king. In a sense, here in this um, psalm, David is um, given a vision, as it were, Of the promised coming Messiah, you'll remember how in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David that he would have an offspring, who would be king, who would reign forever, that there would be a greater king who would come. And here in this psalm, David is given a vision of this king. He unsees him. We know that that's the case because that's what Jesus in the New Testament says the meaning of this psalm is. In the New Testament, Jesus says that this psalm is about him. You'll remember um, when Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and they're questioning him about who he is. They're questioning whether he can really be the Messiah. And he takes them to this psalm and says, tell me, is the Messiah kind of greater than David? If he's greater, how can he be David's son? Jesus quotes this psalm to speak of himself. This is also the psalm that is most quoted in the New Testament. There's no psalm that is more quoted than this psalm um, all through the New Testament, the Book of Acts, and, and the letters. Supremely in the letter to the Hebrews, and in many ways, Psalm 110 um, provides the framework for the letter to the, the, the Hebrews. Hebrews is, is an exposition of this psalm, and its chief message to Christians is to encourage them to keep on going. So if we're to keep on going, to not give up, to not fear that we're losers, we need the vision of Jesus that we're given in this psalm. This vision that was given to David that is now for us. We shouldn't expect that we will be given personally a a kind of a spiritual vision of Jesus. We experience that vision through the word David has written down his experience for us so that we can all benefit from that vision that he has given. We're not looking here for an individual experience, but to hear the word in which that vision is shared with us. So my hope for us this morning as we look at this passage is you will be encouraged by a renewed vision of Jesus. That will encourage you to press on and keep going in the Christian life no matter what you might be struggling with, no matter what it is that's causing you to wonder whether it's worth it, maybe to give up, maybe to drop down a gear, a new vision or a renewed vision of Jesus will keep you going. So here's um, this uh, psalm. And I think we see three things about Jesus um, in this psalm, three ways in which um, uh, uh, sort of he is presented to us. The first of those is in verses 1 to 3, where we see that Jesus is the enthroned king. Jesus is the enthroned king. Here in um, uh, these verses, what what David's essentially given is a vision or an overhearing of God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord. Here we're watching a, a kind of a dialogue take place within the Trinity, As the father speaks to the son who is his anointed king, his chosen uh, kind of messiah. And the focus of these uh, kind of opening verses, verses 1 to 3, is on where Jesus is. And uh, where Jesus is, is enthroned and ruling at the right hand of the father. That's what uh, David sees. Now actually for David at the time that he was granted this vision, this in a sense was prophetic. Prophetic. For David, it was looking forward to what would happen in the future, the enthronement of the Son. For us, this is now past because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. What David sees here is what is made clear in the New Testament, that Jesus is the one who is risen, ascended, and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Throughout the New Testament, this psalm is used to speak of the ascension. Where Jesus takes the throne of the universe at the right hand of His Father, and do you see what David sees. Do you see what the Father says to the Son. He says, "Sit at My right hand." The Son is given all authority. The right hand is the place of power and rule. And here, Jesus, we're reminded, is the one who is enthroned at the right hand of God and he has rule and authority. In a sense, it's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew's Gospel when he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the enthroned king. And he's promised victory. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is what the Father promises the Son. In the period between uh, Jesus' ascension and his enthronement and his return and second coming, he is defeating his enemies. Jesus is ruling and reigning and progressively overcoming his enemies. As the gospel spreads out, as more and more people come into his kingdom. That's what um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes. Again, using this language. Jesus enthroned at the right hand of the Father, defeating his uh, kind of enemies. So here is Jesus, the enthroned king, the one who is ruling at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the one who is defeating um, his uh, enemies. And verse 2 God promises that his kingdom will triumph. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of all your enemies. That's simply the fulfillment of the promises of Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2? God has established his king on Zion, his holy hill, and he will ultimately rule over all of the nations. While well, Jesus is enthroned in the heavenly Zion, the true city of God. And he will... Um, uh, have his reign extended over all of his enemies. He will rule even in the midst of uh, his enemies. And this is what we need to know. This is where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He's been given all authority. He is defeating his enemies. He will triumph. And that gives us confidence to live for him and to serve him, to keep going and not give up, despite the appearance of a world that seems out of control, despite the challenges and the pressures that we face in our own lives. In fact, I'm through the New Testament and the New Testament letters. It seems to me that worship is primarily about recognizing that Jesus is the king. It's about bowing down to him and remembering that he is the one who's enthroned and ruling and reigning. That's the very center of New Testament spirituality, is the recognition of Jesus' kingship and rule and the wonderful privilege of belonging to him. I sense in the the New Testament. In many ways, the earthly life of Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels is not the devotional focus of the New Testament church. The devotional focus of the New Testament church is the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who was seen and glimpsed in the transfiguration. The Lord Jesus who was glorified in the resurrection. The Lord Jesus who is now at the right hand of God. It's the vision of Jesus you find at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The earthly life of Jesus is more the example for us as the heavenly king became a human being and set us as an example of setting his glory aside in order to serve and love others. But the devotional focus is the risen king who we serve. We need to know that Jesus is ruling and reigning and his kingdom will triumph. Well, you may be wondering, where do we fit in as Christians in this? Jesus is the enthroned king, what about us? Well, I think actually we're in verse 3 if we're Christians. Where do we find ourselves in this? Well, we're in verse 3. Because this king, who is reigning and he's going to triumph, he has troops who are going to fight for him. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arranged in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew, From the morning's womb. How is Jesus going to win this victory? Well he's going to win this victory by fighting with his troops. With those who are with him. I think that's a picture of his people. Christians. If you're a Christian you're enlisted into Jesus' army. To fight his spiritual battle. Against his enemies. We do that now. Now. And ultimately, we will do that when Jesus returns. The New Testament uh, teaching on the return of Jesus speaks about how he comes with his holy ones, with his people. I don't know how you think about the day of judgment. It's easy to think of the day of judgment as a day on which, um, in a sense, we're only on the side of being judged. We can be fearful of it. But the New Testament speaks of the day of judgment as a day when we come with Jesus to execute judgment because we're his, We're his army. That's the picture that's being presented here in verse 3. This king has troops who willingly fight on the day of battle and are made glorious by him, arrayed in holy splendor. Jesus is the enthroned king, and we are his army who fight for him, extending his rule. And ultimately, we will come with him in judgment. Isn't that a tremendous encouragement? To know who Jesus is and who we are? Doesn't that spur us on to keep going? Jesus is the enthroned king. Well, secondly, secondly, in verse four, we see that Jesus is the approachable priest. Jesus is the approachable priest. And uh, in in a sense, these verses, or this verse, focuses not on where Jesus is, but what he's doing, what he's doing now. This describes his kind of work uh, in um, the present. The key idea here is that Jesus has been appointed an eternal priest for his people. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, oh, this seems a pretty obscure and weird reference. Melchizedek, if you know anything about Melchizedek, is a rather shadowy character of the Old Testament who appears in just four verses in the book of Genesis. He appears when uh, kind of Abraham has gone to fight the kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot, who's been uh, kind of kidnapped. And God gives um, uh, Abraham the victory and he comes back to celebrate. And he is met by this kind of character, Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, that is king of Jerusalem. Who comes out to meet him with kind of bread and wine. Abraham pays him a tithe and uh, Melchizedek blesses him. It's pretty much all we know about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Until here, we discover that God's king is a priest priest of the order of Melchizedek. And uh, this verse becomes the basis for a whole extended sermon lasting chapters in the book of Hebrews. And The author of the book of Hebrews says it's absolutely crucial that we understand this, what it means for Jesus to be a priest according to Melchizedek. Now, priests... Uh, in the Old Testament, the well, priests were kind of like in-betweens, go-betweens, mediators between God and people. They stood between God and people, kind of um, like uh, kind of negotiators between them. They would bring people to God and they would bring God to people, his blessing to them. Well, the people of Israel, of course, had their own priests. After they'd been rescued from Egypt, God established a priesthood. Aaron was the high priest. The Levites were to serve as the priests. God had established an order of priesthood for um, his people. They would kind of teach them, offer sacrifices for them, and bring God's blessing uh, to them. But here, David in this psalm sees God tells him that there is a greater and superior priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron, a priesthood of the uh, order of Melchizedek. Now, actually, if you read the um, uh, kind of Old Testament and David, one of the strangest things in the story of the life of David is that David is the king, but he also serves as priest. If you read a kind of um, 1 and 2 Samuel, there are various moments at which David undertakes priestly duties. He wears the ephod. He serves before the altar. Even, we're told, his sons act as priests. So there's a sense in which David himself acted as a priest wasn't of the uh, tribe of Levi wasn't of the Aaronic priesthood but he acted in priestly ways and you see here's the pattern Melchizedek was a king priest he was the king priest of Jerusalem and when David becomes king he captures Jerusalem he moves the ark into Jerusalem he becomes the king priest of Jerusalem That pattern finds its ultimate picture in the Lord Jesus, who is the king-priest of this greater order of Melchizedek, an order that predated in God's mind even the um, Aaronic uh, priesthood. That's how the um, uh, letter to the Hebrews can bring together the idea that Jesus is both Messiah, he is God's king, but he is also God's priest, Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, like David, the kingly tribe, but he serves as priest because he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Do you see how important this is? It's how Jesus can be both king and priest. Now, why does that matter so much? Why is that such good news? Well, we might think um, uh, immediately, well, of course it means Jesus is the one who's offered the sacrifice for us, for our sins, so that we can be forgiven. And that's absolutely true. That is wonderful good news. Jesus as priest offers himself so that all those who believe in him can be forgiven all of their sin and brought into relationship with God. But the book of Hebrews, picking up on this verse, doesn't so much highlight that finished work of Jesus making sacrifice for his people. What he highlights is the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus interceding for and helping his people. See, that's the key thing. Jesus' priest is there to help his people. He's there to strengthen them. He's there to bless them. He's there to provide them with the grace that they need to keep on going. The message of the book of Hebrews, applying this verse from here, to Christians who were in danger of giving up because they were facing persecution. Because the social costs of following Jesus were so high. The author of Hebrew says to them, remember Jesus is your priest. And when you're tempted to give up, come to him for the grace that you need. He knows what it's like. He's suffered. He's been tempted. He sympathizes. And you can come to his throne to receive the grace that you need. I think it's easy for us as we read the letter to the Hebrews to think about kind of resisting temptation in a generic sense of whatever sins it might be that we're struggling with. And and that's true. But the letter to the Hebrews is much more about the great temptation of giving up on Jesus and living for him. And it says if you feel like giving up on Jesus and it's not worth living for him because it's too hard, remember that he's your high priest you can come to him for help. You can come boldly to the throne of grace and he will give you help in your time of need. You're not in the Christian life on your own. Yes, there's the tremendous encouragement of fellow believers who will encourage you, but supremely there is the Lord Jesus, your high priest, who will help you and supply the grace that you need. See, he's the reigning king who's ruling, but the world is still full of his enemies. His victory is not yet complete, and life is a struggle. What we need to get us to the end is a priest who is approachable and is able to help us in our time of need. And that's what David saw, that Jesus has been appointed this priest. And Jesus is our priest. And I think as Christians, we need to kind of re-remember that the priestly ministry of Jesus is not just what he did in the past in offering himself on the cross. But the priestly ministry of Jesus is an ongoing ministry as he brings grace to his people. So if you're struggling in the Christian life, and I can assure you there will be times when you will, even if you're not now, If you're struggling with keeping going, where do you need to go? The answer is to Jesus, your high priest, who will supply you with grace in your time of need. Jesus is the enthroned king. Jesus is the approachable priest. And then lastly and thirdly, Jesus is the coming judge. Jesus is the coming judge. That's really verses um, uh, 6 to 7. And uh, if um, uh, Jesus as the enthroned king reminds us um, uh, where he is and and, and speaks of the past, if Jesus as the approachable priest reminds us of what he's doing, it speaks about the present, then these verses speak about how Jesus will triumph and they point us to um, the future. And the key here is that Jesus will triumph over all of his enemies. He will will win the ultimate victory. In a sense, it uh, kind of picks up on what we see in verses uh, 2 and 3. What's happening now in in terms of Jesus uh, uh, kind of ruling over his enemies will be brought to complete completion. As in the end, he utterly crushes them. That's the picture that's uh, presented here. um, uh, uh, Jesus, the one who is Lord, reigning and ruling at the right hand of God, will crush kings on the day of wrath. There will be a day when he comes and God's wrath is poured out. And on that day, all earthly rulers, all those in rebellion against him, will be crushed. You just have to imagine um, uh, Israelites reading this uh, kind of psalm in the time of the exile when their nation has been conquered by the Babylonians, the Persians, it will go on to be conquered by the, the, kind of the Greeks, by the Romans, when they seem small and insignificant and the nations seem so powerful and oppressive. Well, here this vision is giving them hope that their king in the end will crush the kings and the nations. The superpowers that look so invincible will be kind of brought down. That's the great hope that this psalm holds out. Justice will be done at the end of history because God's king will crush um, all of uh, his enemies. The kings, the nations, the rulers of the whole earth in the end everything will be brought into submission to him I I think as Christians we can be all too easily embarrassed by judgment do you not find it difficult sometimes as we think about judgment we're kind of embarrassed about the idea of judgment we're fearful of it well for God's people here in this psalm and through the New Testament the coming of Jesus in judgment is actually the cause for great hope is it actually means that justice will finally be done. Because the reality is, in a fallen, wicked world, we live in a world in which we long for justice, but we can't get justice. It isn't done. This week, um, it's been announced that um, uh, MBS, the kind of ruler of Saudi Arabia, is going to be coming to visit the UK. And some measure of outrage, after all, the uh, kind of murder of the journalist Khashoggi is, is an appalling action that he apparently ordered. People say, how can we welcome somebody like that to come? Well, the reason is because we need the support of Saudi Arabia and their money and everything else. There's a sort of a real politique that plays out in this world. It looks as though justice doesn't get done. And we wonder, kind of, why. Well, this reassures us. There may not be justice in this world, but there will be justice in the end. Uh, As a church, we normally meet on a Sunday morning for our prayer meeting. And we're praying through the kind of um, open doors world watch list of the 50 most persecuting countries in the world. And it just breaks your heart, really, to hear week by week of how Christians are being mistreated and persecuted by wicked regimes all around the world. We pray for them, that the Lord would sustain them, but in many cases, they're facing um, terrible injustice. And in many cases, that won't be put right in this world. What is it that keeps them going? Well, I hope that what keeps them going is the ultimate hope that justice will be done when Jesus returns. He will crush the kings, the rulers, and the nations. They will not get away with it. No one will get away with it. That's the great hope um, that we have of the ultimate triumph of Jesus. I don't know about you, when you, you listen even to the news, listen to the news, it is just so easy to lose heart over what's happening in the world. I think as a generation, because of communication, we are more informed of what's happening than any generation has ever been before. It feels an immense burden and weight. When we hear that, we need to remember that Jesus will do justice and put everything right. In a sense, it's a reminder to be like the sort of widow praying in Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. It's a, a parable that teaches us to be patient and keep crying for justice, because in the end, justice will be done, because God is not like the unjust Uh, sort of judge who needs to be cajoled into doing justice he is the God who longs to do justice and he will do it at the right time at the end of history when his saving plan has been finished and completed and there's nothing remains but judgment to put everything right Jesus is the coming judge how does that help us to keep going? well it reminds us that we can wait patiently with hope prayerfully crying out you do realize don't you that the prayer at the end of the bible come lord jesus is a prayer for judgment it's a prayer for jesus to come and put an end to it all and put everything right that's really where our hope lies as those who are jesus people so here is this vision of Jesus, a vision that was granted to David that he's written down for us. It was given to encourage him. It was gathered together in these Psalms to encourage the people of God in their exile and it's applied in the New Testament to those of us who are Jesus' people to encourage us, to keep faithful, to persevere, to not give up. Jesus is the enthroned king. Ruling and defeating his enemies as his rule is extended. Jesus is the approachable priest. He's the one we can come to who will help us in our time of need. Bring us the grace to keep going. He is the coming judge who will ultimately put everything right. I actually think those are the foundation truths that we as Christians need to remind ourselves of every single day. It's the perspective that we need to have. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the priest we can come to. Jesus is the judge who's going to put everything right. And we live uh, on the basis of those truths. It's the vision that will sustain us, that will uh, keep us going. So I think there are two, two key questions that this sort of psalm Um, Asks of each of us. The first question is this. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? Your king, your ruler, the one you recognise and bow down to and and live for. Verse 1, do you see how it begins? The Lord said to my Lord... David there is confessing that the Jesus that he sees is the Lord that he serves. Here's the king, God's anointed king on earth, recognising that he has a king that he serves, a Lord who rules over him. The reason why this is such an encouragement to David, these truths that um, Jesus is king, Jesus is priest, Jesus is judge, is because he recognises Jesus as Lord. See, actually, for somebody who doesn't recognise Jesus as Lord, this psalm ought to be terrifying So what this psalm says for all those who don't recognize Jesus as Lord is you will be crushed on that last day of wrath. When his righteous anger at every way that you failed to live for him and serve him is finally poured out, you will not get away with it. But the great news is that you can come and recognize him as Lord. The great news is no matter what you've done, no matter how you've behaved, no matter how you've ignored him, You can turn to him and become one of his people, receive his forgiveness, have him as your king, come to him as your priest and look forward to him coming as judge. Uh, Remarkably, David, who wrote this psalm, you may know this, uh, David in his life did some terrible things. Maybe you're thinking, I'm too bad ever to be able to come to God and become one of his people. Well, David committed adultery and David committed murder. He bumped off the husband because he wanted to try to get away with it. My guess is most of you haven't done that. Yet this man who did that was able to come and receive God's grace and still say, Jesus is his Lord. Because there's forgiveness because of what Jesus did. As as his priestly work... He died on the cross essentially to bear our sin and bore on himself the wrath of that last day for all those who believe and trust in him. You can come to him and recognize him as Lord, and he'll welcome you. You'll become one of his troops enlisted in his army serving him, forgiven and accepted and able to claim these great truths for yourself. Is Jesus your Lord? And then the second question, if Jesus is your Lord, are your eyes fixed on him? Is he your vision? Is he the one that you look to for hope and encouragement? So it's all too easy, isn't it, for us to to put our hope elsewhere, to seek to put our hope in human leaders, to seek to put our hope in personal experiences, to seek to put our hope in our own achievements and abilities as if they will see us through. This psalm says, no. Where you need to look is to Jesus, the vision of him, the one who's the enthroned king, the one who is the approachable priest who will help you in your time of need, the one who is the coming judge who will put everything right. If we make that our focus, then no matter what challenges life and the world may throw at us, we will know that we are not the losers, but instead we're the troops of the victor. And it will enable us to keep going. Let some pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you so much for this vision of Jesus that you gave to David. Thank you that it was evidently such an encouragement to him. Thank you that you caused him by your spirit to write it down so that we too can be given this vision of Jesus. We thank you and praise you that he is the enthroned ruling king. Give us a a sense of his great power and authority and the certainty of his victory over his enemies. We thank you that he is the priest, that you have made him priest in the order of Melchizedek. And thank you that because of that, we can come to him for grace and help when we're tempted to give up. Thank you we can come boldly. And thank you that we can come knowing that because of his earthly life, he understands. And we thank you and praise you that he will come as judge that one day there will be the day of wrath when everything is put right and all of your enemies are crushed. Thank you that today is the day of salvation. Thank you that you are calling men and women to receive your forgiveness and, uh, and to become his people. But we thank you that there will be ultimately a day of judgment when everything is put right and justice is done. May that bring us great comfort and confidence, we pray. So please help us to fix our eyes anew on Jesus that we might faithfully continue to serve him. And we ask this for his sake and his glory.